From the feature staff at the Columbus Dispatch, this is Life in the 614. Hi, and welcome to Life in the 614, the official lifestyle podcast of the Features Department at the Columbus Dispatch, coming to you every Thursday. If it sounds like fun, we'll be talking about it. I'm Ryan Smith, Features Editor at the Dispatch, and today I'm joined in studio by my colleague, reporter Steve Stevens. In a way, this weekend is very aspirational. It might be cold outside, but so many of us insist on thinking warm thoughts and focusing on summer. And with summer, naturally comes camp. Visitors to the Camp and Activities Expo can explore all sorts of available camps from 10 to 3 on Saturday at the Columbus Zoo and Aquarium. An online coupon provides for a deep discount on normal admission and parking. For those among us who wish they had a pet or wish they had another pet, there's the All-American Columbus Pet Expo, which returns to the Ohio Expo Center Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. There will be 20 pet rescue organizations on the site to talk about adoption in addition to merchants and entertainment. But for those of us who aspire to write, and write well. There's an upcoming visit by author Salvatore Scibona, whose latest novel, The Volunteer, was released this week. A Northeast Ohio native, he was a National Book Award finalist in 2008 for his debut, The End. Now he'll be appearing Tuesday at Gramercy Books in Bexley. He took some time ahead of his visit to speak with us by phone. Thanks for joining us today, Salvatore. You know that I'm a Clevelander, right? I'm kind of the enemy. (laughs) (laughs) The enemy? Frenemies. (laughs) Yeah, we don't think of it that way. I'm originally from Canton, so I'm up from that way. Very good. That's where we were hoping to begin, was with your roots in Ohio. We were kind of wondering if growing up in Ohio played much of a role in your development as a writer. It inevitably did, yeah. I think that probably the, the most important way is I had uh, really great public school teachers. I didn't grow up in an especially sort of bookish environment. And I, I should also say I had absolutely awful study skills. At one point, I was flunking. I flunked four classes out of six in the middle of high school. I was really, I even flunked American literature. I just had no skills at uh, getting any kind of work done. But I had really great, strong Ohio public school teachers who continued to talk to me. Like, I would fail to do the homework because I was at home reading some novel that someone had, that one of them had given me and I was really interested in. And they were exceptionally patient in that way. But more materially, I guess, my mother and father were both born in Cleveland and they both lived there. And all my siblings were born in in Cleveland and still live there in that area. All of my great-grandparents are buried in Cleveland. So, you know, I feel like I have a very vivid sense of being from somewhere in particular. And that was certainly the grounding of my first book. What would you say is the most important thing that you would tell a reader who's considering a dive into your new novel, The Volunteer? Sure. The thing that made me, that sort of spurred the book at the very beginning is that I was in a German airport. I was going back to Latvia from Germany, and I had, I was staying in Latvia for a little while, and I, I had this sort of fetish of not liking to have leftover foreign cash in my pocket. So I, I went up to the counter to this flight and intending to ask how much it cost to buy a martini on the plane. And as I was waiting in line, there was a child who was crying, really crying kind of inconsolably. I thought that it was his mother who was talking to him at the flight attendant, but then the woman I thought was the mother got up and went to sit among the rest of the people waiting to get on the flight, and I realized, oh, she, I guess she wasn't the mother. It's really curious, and he was he was really crying in a kind of a strange, kind of exhausted, but very controlled way. 
And then when I finally got up to the front of the line, I asked the, the guy behind the counter, how much does it cost to buy a martini on this plane? And he goes, oh, I, I don't know. I work for this airline. I said, do I have the right flight? How can you not work for the airline? He said, Air Baltic only has one flight coming out of this airport. We don't have, they don't have permanent staff here. I work for the airport. And I said, oh, all right. Well, do you know what was wrong with that kid? And he said, no one knows what language he's speaking. I turned around and I saw that the kid had, was coming back around the corner being led by this flight attendant. And that was when, it, it was about a half hour later at this point, and that was when I turned and looked at everybody else waiting on the, on the concourse, and I realized that all these people were horror-stricken, and everybody had been wrapped watching this child. And it had gotten around to all of them that the kid was like four or five years old, and there was no parent anywhere. And no one knew what language he was speaking. And it suddenly it became pretty evident to me that someone had abandoned him in the airport. And I tried what I could do to help and um, tried a couple of languages that I could speak on him and he didn't respond to any of them. And then uh, eventually I just got on the plane and as soon as the fastened seatbelt light went off, everybody in the plane stood up and was, everybody was trying to see if anybody else had any kind of information. Like we were all traumatized by this and none of us, as far as I know, ever found out what happened to this kid. And that, of course, so, is how your new novel begins. So, so the novel is in some way, it's an effort to, I try to write only about things that matter to me a lot, you know, and I wanted to, I felt like I needed to know how that kid had gotten to that place. The novel takes you back 50 years before that moment and leads you back up to that time. Speaking about writing about things that you care about, at one point in the novel, the lead character of Ali Fraid finds a kind of direction in a short passage from uh, the brothers Karamazov. Mm -hmm. Which writers would you say influenced your own work? Oh, that's a great question. Yeah, it's there is a passage from the brothers Karamazov in there, although it's not identified as such. And I we sort of thought that would be a sort of sweet thing to leave unattributed. Well, I felt very proud uh, as <laughs> searching it out. <laughs> Good, I'm glad you did. It wouldn't have been, I mean, in the, in the context of the book, uh, he himself doesn't know where it comes from. It's a friend of his, sense in that passage. Yeah, I, I love the brothers Karamazov. In a way, I think of the three main characters of the book as, as the three brothers Karamazov. I really, I love Don DeLillo a lot. I love Toni Morrison, another Ohio writer, obviously. And I love really intensely an Icelandic writer named Haldor Loxness. Oh, nice. Um, do you like Haldor Loxness? Very much. Oh, excellent. Yeah, my next book, the third book, which I'm working on now, is set in Iceland, is sort of my answer to Halder Lachsness, my love letter to him in some way. But also, I should say more recently, uh, I've read a lot of Cormac McCarthy in the last four or five years, and I know I was late to that train, but I was really riveted by his ability to make the landscape and make physical details sort of hold emotional resonance and even moral resonance in a way that was kind of kind of miraculous. I don't know if you guys have read much of him, but he can he can just without intruding as a narrator to come in and tell you what his own judgment is of a of a, of a moment. He can just sort of make every physical object seem to like vibrate electrically with moral consequence. And, and there are a lot of places in this book. You know, the narrator is rather objective. The narrator doesn't step in too often to condemn what people have done. And I really I really believe in that, because I, I, for many reasons, one of which is that um, I think that the reader's judgment is kind of sacred, and I want the reader to feel his or her judgment engaged. 
freely so that they can watch a person do something that's possibly very troubling, but come to their own conclusions about what brought that person to do it. The identity, the malleability, the fragility of identity plays a big role in the book. And at one point, Lolly abandons his old identity and adopts a new one, and other characters seem to seek or hide from their identity. What makes the changeability of individual identity such an intriguing subject? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. That's the heart of the book, I think. It's not, this is, I tried to thread a kind of fine needle here because I think many of us are familiar with stories of uh, someone changing their name and the, the objective is to be someone else. But Vali has a very, it's a, a slightly different take on that. He really, he really wants to become nobody. And there's a there's an incident that early on in his childhood that makes that especially pressing to him. The thing that is that seems really urgent to me about that problem is that I think I and I'm sure many other people have had intense experiences of being really deeply present with a moment with another person, with the natural world, for example. And and when that breaks, when that when you get out of the moment very often it's the ego or sense of self that is interrupting it. I guess I, I felt very intensely that I wanted to know what it felt like to just drop that whole thing, just completely leave the I, the self behind. What would it what would it be like to live to live that way? To not to die, you know, and not really to try to be somebody else. Although by necessity in the novel he he has to adopt another name in order to get by in the world. But the objective really is in a, a deep way to be egoless. And then as a further consequence in the rest of the book, because a book is a largely a novel is largely about consequences, the thing that the book is really ultimately about is what is the consequence of making a decision like that on yourself, on the people around you. I mean, anyone, I think, for example, who's had a transporting experience of a piece of music, and then when the music ends and you sort of shake your head and you think, where was I? You know, you forget yourself. He wants that for real, and that's really what the book is about. Volley's an amateur pianist, and I think he at one point calls music Numbers in Motion. Are you a music lover or a musician? I was really stuck after my first book for a really long time. I kept writing every day, but everything was just a hash. And after a while, I kind of, I had an ambition to model a piece of, model a novel on a piece of music by Bach. And I had studied music in college, but I never had played an instrument before. And suddenly I just had this, I was struck by this need to be able to play this piece of music on the piano. And I had no training in piano at all. So I I bought a piano, I started taking lessons, I practiced you know, sometimes two or three hours a day, I gave myself tendonitis, kind of insane and stupid, and so that I had to find a new teacher to teach me to play in a new way. But I started doing it for, you know, I've been playing for four or five years now, maybe six, and it really transformed my life. So, yeah, and his, in Bali's, um, the other reason that I really needed to do that was that, you know, Bali understood selflessness through music first, and I felt in my really sort of wasteful way that the only way that I could get really close to him was to learn to play the piano and not just to listen to other people playing it. That's commitment to a character. Well, I'm not like Robert De Niro gaining <laughs> 70 pounds. As far as your method, you know, the book delves deeply into the Vietnam War and the intelligence community. How much research did the novel require and how'd you go about doing it? I researched pretty continually for, I would say, five or six years. I mean, I, I don't really, really stop research. 
at any point. But there were years there where most of what I was doing was reading books of intelligence analysis and uh, books, especially books about the intelligence business, the history of the intelligence business, and of course a lot about about Vietnam, about the armaments of Vietnam, about you know really everything that I could stomach. And the, the difficult thing, I guess, for me is unlike the way maybe a historian would do research, I kind of, as a novelist, writing about somebody who really who's in the Vietnam War but does really know what's going on around him because he's so in it. My challenge was to know what I all I could about about the facts and the history, but not betray, not have that knowledge sort of infect the consciousness of somebody who's right there in the present. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, this is the inspiration for this is from my dad, honestly, who's my father was was a volunteer in the Marine Corps in, in uh, 1967 when he he volunteered and um, and very quickly after boot camp he found himself waylaid with a supply uh, convoy at a place called Quezon, and he was stuck there for two months. He was sure he was going to die, but he didn't think that what he was experiencing was at all special. He didn't know. He thought, well, this he just got to the country. He assumed that war was like this all the time, and it was only seven, ten years later that he was at home, married, and had kids, and was watching this documentary about the war in Vietnam that he realized that Quezon had been the, the site of the... that he been in the middle of the largest aerial bombardment in the history of warfare up to that time. The American forces had dropped more from the air, more more bombs, heavier bombs and tonnage on um, on Quezon than on Western Europe during the war. It was a totally devastating event. And he had, didn't have the internet, you know, he didn't have a phone. He wasn't trained to ask questions. He only knew that basically what his job was and what he could see around him. And that, to me, is... Um, a novelist is the big challenge to sort of get to get into the fabric of lived experience without betraying necessarily stuff that the you know people in the present moment can't really know. And of course, that's that's Volley's experience, and and as you said, that's the experience of so many of those young men serving there being in something that they really can't grasp the enormity of or all the implications. Yeah. And I want to say also an important thing for me is that I'm not ultimately talking about their ignorance. That is, I don't mean to say well, look at all we know, and boy, how little they knew about what was going on. What I really mean is that by virtue of only knowing the things that they could see and hear, I think that they could know, the people in those circumstances could know things that we can't possibly know. You know what I mean? That that have really, like the experience that you, the line that you often get from, hear from veterans that you can't possibly understand. I have a lot of respect for that. And so I think part of the, trying to get close to all that all of you know what I can't understand and trying to do that with the imagination involves trying as hard as I can to get the physical details right I just wanted to uh, say uh, we're really looking forward to having you in Columbus and uh, wanted to ask if you can tell us yet about your next book have you had that airport moment from uh, the volunteer that's going to spur the next one? Yeah, I have. It's uh, it's not exactly a moment, but it's yeah. My experience reading Helder Locksmith has really been life changing. As your colleague, I think, can, can attest that his book, Independent People, was just really tremendous. He came to me in a dream. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that that real, means something. Uh... Yeah, no, it was very. I had a very intense dream about him. I'll, I'll tell you about it some other time, but. <laughs> okay. um, 
I, I have concurrently been working on this other book that is uh, largely set in Iceland and elsewhere in Northern Europe. It has nothing to do with it, <laughs> with the volunteer. But the moment this book is really out in the world and I'm up free a uh, couple of years, I'm getting <laughs> I'm getting right to it. Well, I'm eager to read that one as well. Uh, I really enjoyed the volunteer. Will you be Great. taking up any new instruments for the next project? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. The glockenspiel? I don't know. <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't hope so. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This was fabulous. We're looking forward to reading the book myself. Thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, take care. And thank you all for listening to Life in the 614. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Play Music. We hope to have you back next week. Until then, keep enjoying your own life in the 614.